and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a college student and co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Matthew Lawrence, Assistant Professor of Law at the Pennsylvania State University Dickinson Law School and an affiliate of the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School. We'll discuss his article, The Social Consequences Problem in Health Insurance and How to Solve It, forthcoming in the Harvard Law and Policy Review. Welcome, Professor Lawrence. Hi, Luz. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. So let's begin on how did you get interested in this topic and what's the general crux of your argument within this paper? Sure. Well, I love that question because actually it was a podcast that first got me interested in this topic. In the health law world, uh, we have a, a podcast called The Week in Health Law. And I, I listen to that as I drive along with other podcasts like Ipsy Dixit. And um, uh, I, I, I heard the podcast episode when Erin Fuse Brown came on to talk about her uh, really interesting article in the uh, Washington Law Review about um, health insurance consumer protection and these uh, outrageous medical billing scenarios that have been popping up in the news lately, and then state efforts to deal with them legislatively. Uh, and so during the course of her uh, conversation with the hosts of that podcast, you know, I was very interested in the issue. I was, uh, you know, I'd heard about outrageous medical bills, like a person who, you know, goes to the ER while they're on vacation and winds up with an $8,000 bill for, a, you know, a cream that was put on their knee or something like that. And I'm not really exaggerating. Um, and I'd heard about those and, and I learned more from uh, Professor Fuse Brown about state efforts to um, rein them in, perhaps with like a law that bans surprise medical bills or something like that. But I found myself wondering as I listened about uh, the normative case for those laws, about thinking from a kind of a welfare economic standpoint, why, why were patients who had health insurance finding themselves getting subjected to these outrageous medical bills in the first place, why wasn't the health insurance plan fixing that or dealing with it or insulating the patient from those sorts of outrageous bills? Why was it uh, necessary for state legislators to come in and try to fix it? So uh, that got me wondering about the normative case for uh, these um, health insurance consumer protection laws. And as I investigated that, I realized I had to focus not on the thing we normally focus on in healthcare, which is um, which is health impacts of a rule of insurance or or of uh, treatment rule, but on uh, other impacts, financial impacts, psychological impacts, social impacts of a practice, or in this case, a medical bill. And what I realized, kind of in a nutshell, and and I look forward to talking more about it, is that. Uh, um, the problem with medical billing is a lot deeper and more pervasive than just the particular stories of outrageous medical bills that you hear about in the news, such that I think we need to regulate it differently and perhaps more systematically, that ad hoc prohibitions that limit particular abusive practices uh, might well be warranted, but we should also explore more systematic reforms that uh, try to deal with the underlying problem um, that, that, again, is 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 a bigger and more pervasive problem. So within your paper, you talk about the social consequences problem of health insurance. Do you mind talking a little bit about what that is? 
Yes, perfect question. So, um, again, I use the phrase in the paper, social consequences, uh, really a shorthand for social, financial, and psychological psychological consequences of medical bills. And, and you can distinguish that from health consequences. Usually in the healthcare space, in health law, we're thinking about how does this impact somebody's health? But if you're thinking about how a medical bill impacts somebody, that medical bill may well impact their health, and that's a very important consideration. But the real impact it's having, or much of its impact, is a financial impact. It's causing them not just a cost, you know, $1,000 for a $1,000 bill, but also financial distress and opportunity cost, the things they have to forego or that they can't afford because of their efforts to pay the bill. It's also causing them a psychological cost. Uh, I start the article off with a quote of somebody who hides the bills that come in the mail from uh, their partner. And I think, as I've talked about this paper with people, you meet a lot of people for whom getting a medical bill in the mail is a source of stress. And that's the sort of consideration I'm trying to capture with uh, the psychological cost. And that also has some basis in the um, behavioral economics literature, which has talked a lot about decisional burden. The more uh, financial stresses there are on a person, the more it begins to overwhelm uh, cognitive capacity and can make a person worse at making judgments about finances or about health or something like that. And then third is psycho- is sorry social consequences. Uh, uh, we might have this model in our mind of an individual patient getting an individual bill, but for many people, the patient is, is a child and it's, it's the parent dealing with the bill, or the patient is a partner and it is, is a partner who's dealing with the bill, who's dealing with disputing the bill, maybe appealing things to the insurance company. And so it's important as well to focus on those social consequences. And I use as a shorthand for that social, psychological, financial consequences of medical bills. And the problem is that the uh, health insurance plan, what it covers, how it covers it, the way it operates, largely controls the social, psychological, and financial consequences of health care and of medical bills. But health insurers are um, economically disincentivized from adequately taking those consequences into account in designing their plans. Um, uh, let me pause for a moment there. We've kind of identified this category of social consequences. We probably don't want to have a world where there are zero social consequences. We might want a world where there are some medical bills, for example. Um, that's fine. And law is often about making trade-offs. This is a space where the trade-offs that we make, we make through the health insurance marketplace, and we rely on health insurers and health insurance consumers to make decisions about what kind of plans to design and purchase, and that's how we make trade-offs about uh, these social consequences. And um, my concern is that the um, market failures that apply to health insurance generally and have been pretty well documented as reasons to worry that health insurers don't adequately um, address healthcare needs, that those market failures are even worse when it comes to social consequences for two really specific reasons. First, um, when it comes to the health consequences of health insurance, whether or not you get that MRI, whether or not you, um, you know, get the surgery and when you get it, when it comes to health consequences, there's a lot of literature about potential market failures that might justify something like a mandate that health insurance cover a particular item. Um, but those market failures are mitigated because there is an intermediary 
in the health insurance kind of marketplace that is well positioned and incentivized to advocate on behalf of patients' health. And that is, of course, their doctor. Uh, the medical community we've seen kind of repeatedly will come forward and challenge abusive health insurance rules that hurt health. But when it comes to the social consequences of health insurance and when it comes to you know, medical bills and financial distress, doctors are not trained to uh, kind of recognize or, or deal with those sorts of consequences. And moreover, because we often rely on doctors um, for the billing aspect of medicine, doctor's incentive is not actually to mitigate your uh, financial distress or make bills as painless as possible for you. Rather, doctor's incentive is to try to get you to pay as soon as possible whatever you owe them. And so then what we see is in uh, handbooks and instructional materials for providers, it will often say, try to get paid as soon as possible, maybe on the way out of the hospital or something like that. So this intermediary that when it comes to health is kind of both trained and incentivized to advocate and kind of undercut any market failures when it comes to the health insurance product and health care. It's almost the opposite when it comes to the social consequences. They uh, don't have the training to necessarily think about financial distress in these issues, although there's movements under, underway there. And they also don't have the incentives to think about those issues. So that's one reason to worry. Even more than other issues, health insurance will be bad at managing social consequences. And then a second reason is that uh, medical debt and insolvency someone going bankrupt because they can't pay their bills, that's actually an externality of health insurance cost sharing. So what I mean is, if you're entering into a new health insurance plan with your insurer, right now there's maybe a 10% chance that if you incur any bills, uh, you won't be able to pay them. And that cost is borne by your providers or whoever your providers might come to be because the bills will be sent to you by the provider, you won't pay them, and the provider bears the cost. If you enter into, let's say, a patient-friendly billing plan with your health insurer that says that the health insurer is going to guarantee you financing for your medical bills and make sure that you can afford them, well, that's going to reduce the likelihood you can't pay your bills. So it's going to maybe help from an insolvency standpoint, but it's also going to bring that cost of bad debt away from the provider and into the insurance contract. And so it's going to kind of bring in that externality. And that externality problem of patient bad debt is a second reason to worry that health insurers do not adequately account for um, social consequences in designing plans. And the consumers don't adequately um, uh, think about it and, uh, and take it into account in purchasing plans, which is why I think we wind up with a health insurance system that makes medical billing um, more painful than it necessarily needs to be because it fails to make the appropriate trade-offs. So let's expand a little bit on what the billing system looks like, particularly balanced billing, and what the incentives for providers, patients, and insurers looks like. Sure. So in our current system, um, the status quo, of course, is if you don't have health insurance, that if you get sick, you can get treated. And that's great because now you're not suffering the same kind of health impacts, but it's often comes at, um, at a financially debilitating cost. There's actually laws, including the federal EMTALA statute, and there's ethical requirements that require physicians to treat you at the ER, but then they'll send you a bill that might well be um, unaffordable to you. The result of that is twofold. First, for much of the population, we find ways to get people health insurance. 
And in our healthcare system, that might be Medicare, it might be Medicaid, it might be the Affordable Care Act exchanges. But we get people on health insurance with the goal in that category that the health insurance that payer will actually pay for the healthcare costs and and dilute the impact on the patient. And then for everyone who doesn't get health insurance, the provider simply sends them a bill. Often they can't pay it. And then the provider just has to eat the bad debt. And then it's well known the provider... um, uh, may get reimbursed through Medicare. There may be other arrangements where the provider tries to make up the bad debt that they tried to eat. And that's kind of our system. Now I want to kind of focus in on, uh, for those who have health insurance, you could imagine that, hey, if I have health insurance, they will pay 100% of my medical bills. But we know that's not the case. Most health insurance has some amount of cost sharing, which might be a deductible. It might be a copay. It might be coinsurance. Uh, you know, a deductible is an amount of money you have to spend out of pocket before your health insurance even kicks in. It might be $5,000. But hey, your deductible year restarted, so the first $5,000 medical bills this year, you're going to have to pay for it yourself before your health insurance kicks in. And then uh, copay might be a flat fee on uh, particular services, and coinsurance is kind of a percentage fee. So health insurance through these forms of cost sharing splits costs between the health insurer who bears most of the costs usually and the patient who will bear some of the costs. You could imagine a world, and I'm trying to imagine a world, where you have health insurance like that for which the health insurer bears most of the costs, but some of the cost will be borne by the patient. And we could talk about the reasons for that. You could have a world like that where the health insurer just always pays 100% of your medical bills or let's say 100% of your covered medical bills and then you sort out the liability between the insurer and the patient. So let's say you have a 20% coinsurance, which means you're going to have to pay 20% of your medical bills. Um, you could imagine a world where if you go to the doctor, the doctor simply bills the insurer, the insurer pays the doctor in full, and then the insurer writes you and says, you now owe us 20% of whatever that bill was. That's not the world we have. Instead, the insurer will refuse to pay the, the 20% of your bill to the doctor associated with your cost sharing, or 50% or 100% or whatever that amount might be. The result of that is that the doctor then has to bill you for your share of the costs. This is why, if you've ever gone to the doctor and had to deal with cost sharing, which most of us have, oftentimes what will wind up happening is you'll go to the doctor, you'll immediately get a bill or soon after get a bill from the doctor that seems to be for the full amount of the visit, but it says, well, your insurer might be paying some of this. Then your insurer will send you a separate letter that's called an explanation of benefits that says, well, we've decided we cover 80%, you owe 20% to the doctor. Then you'll get further bills from the doctor for your 20%. And by this time, if you've been keeping track, you know, kudos to you. Uh, but probably at the end of the day, you should be cutting a check now to your doctor for some smaller amount, and the insurer has covered the rest. Uh, that's kind of the confusing status quo. And I think that's one of um, the... Uh, byproducts, one of the symptoms of the fact that we don't have a health insurance system that uh, has the right incentives to make trade-offs about the social consequences of health insurance. I think if we did, we might well see more um, activity by health insurers to make that whole billing scenario manageable and reduce the role for providers in the system. So let's expand a little bit on the current status quo of the explanation of benefits uh, system with health insurers and what the idealized world where the incentives for uh, health insurers to actually deal with this problem would look like. 
Yeah. Um, and, and thanks for that question. So, um, really important to note, I, I think, about this project, that this is a project where I try to synthesize um, economic theory with available evidence about what's happening in the health insurance marketplace, what's happening for healthcare consumers. And then I make predictions that I would say are speculative about how the world would be different if the incentives were different. Uh, so so what, I can, what I conclude in the paper and, and what I assert is the social consequences problem in health insurance is that health insurers today are responsible for making trade-offs about the burden of medical bills and they don't have the right economic incentive to make the trade-offs that we would think they should make in a kind of an optimal situation, which is appropriately balance the different um, values at stake. I don't know if you were to change insurers' incentives to mitigate um, those distortions. I don't know what world would result. Uh, I have some predictions about ways we could make the world better. And, and what I do in the paper is unpack what those predictions are and suggest that regulators experiment with those ideas. Um, but in this space, what we're trying to do, as we often are in legal scholarship, is connect legal rules and the incentives they create to behavior in the real world. And that's just really hard. That's, people call that the knowledge problem, and it's, it's incredibly hard to do. Um, that's actually, uh, I should say, one of the reasons that I think we should look for systemic incentive-based reforms to change what insurers do and to change how these trade-offs get made, rather than rely only on kind of ad hoc mandatory prohibitions. Because I see a risk that if we prohibit a particular practice, but don't change the underlying problematic incentive, then we'll just kind of um, channel that problematic incentive into another practice that we don't necessarily see, but is equally problematic, if not uh, more problematic. Um, did, did that answer your question? It did. Um, so how did we get here? What major watershed moments of uh, the last years really led us to this system? Well, um, that's... So I'll say that's that's a question I'm happy to uh, give you a, a brief answer to. Um, uh, uh, there's a book called The Social Transformation of American Medicine uh, that is really terrific on kind of the history of American medicine in the 20th century. It's a classic. Um, so I would recommend that to anybody interested in this area. And um, Tim Jost is, is a, uh, uh, and Mark Hall are both uh, law professors I respect a lot, who I've learned a lot from, who've also written about kind of how the system came to be. I think there's as much, as I understand it, politics in, in how we got the system we have and, um, and movements uh, that you could criticize or you could laud. Um, but movements, as there is um, uh, law and structure, uh, so... I guess what I'm getting at, I'm kind of begging off the question saying, to me, that's in a way a question of, of history that I would point you to uh, people who, who understand the history better than I do, um, rather than to uh, than a question of kind of uh, legal structure and trade-offs. That said, with that caveat, I'll give you my understanding from the like legal structure and trade-offs uh, point of view. Um, we, as healthcare got much more costly, 
uh, health insurance became the mechanism for uh, ensuring access to costly healthcare for people who couldn't otherwise afford it, and also for insulating people, insulating their bank accounts and their and their mortgages and their you know college funds and their uh, um, ability to pay for rent from the costs of um, of of medicine when they need care, and so people began having health insurance coverage. And uh, the very early roots of that are actually providers uh, encouraging people, hospitals, encouraging uh, uh, people to uh, develop health insurance plans in order to make sure that there would be money for the hospitals to get paid when people got sick, as I understand it. Then over time, there became concern that uh, if somebody has health insurance and they're going to pay, let's say, 0% of their medical bills, you know, if, if I've perfect health insurance, and I'm never going to have to pay a bill because I'm completely covered, then I might have what economists call moral hazard, that uh, I, I have an incentive now to um, not care about the cost of care, you know, to go to the ER rather than my primary care doctor if the ER is closer or I can't get an appointment, even if the ER is much more expensive. Um, also now maybe physicians have an incentive to provide a lot more care than is necessary. And there might even be overconsumption of care. Uh, anyway, that was a concern. I, I, I don't want to speak to the correctness of that concern. And, and much has been written, much persuasive to me has been written um, about, about this resulting movement to combat moral hazard that is often called consumerism. And the idea is, why don't we give patients, even if they have health insurance, quote, skin in the game by making their health insurance pay only for most of their bills? Rather than 100% of their bills, let's have the health insurance pay for 90% of your bills or 80% or 70%, whatever it is. And that remaining fraction of your bills that you have to pay for, that will give you reason to you know, avoid the unnecessary expensive care and to shop among doctors and other things like that. And that is the kind of justification, as I understand it, for cost sharing, for the idea that we give people some cost of their care. Now, again, there's been a lot of critique of that consumerism movement, uh, and, and you could delve into the footnotes of the article uh, for, for some of that critique. Um, but, but that is how we came to have cost sharing. And then once we came to have cost sharing, it's simply been left to insurers who are developing uh, the health insurance plans and developing the cost sharing provisions. And of course, health insurance consumers and employers who uh, purchase health insurance plans and shop for health insurance plans to devise how that cost sharing will work. And uh, they've devised the system that we have now, which is, again, that uh, if you have cost sharing, if you have to pay some of your medical bills, even though you have insurance um, in our current system, rather than you therefore owe money to your health insurer who pays the doctor, it's your, we, we kind of have this awkward process by which your health insurer figures out what they're going to pay the doctor, and then the doctor bills you for the rest. So how does the Affordable Care Act uh, shape the terrain of healthcare and the social consequences problem? Yeah. Um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so if, if I can narrow your question, uh, if, if that's allowed, um, I, would, I would highlight a way that I think the Affordable Care Act sought to make health insurance more affordable and to reduce uh, what I'm calling the social consequences of health insurance. But, but 
may have um, in some ways um, facilitated uh, things getting worse in some ways. And, and I don't know if things are worse on net, but but some kind of counterproductive aspects of what the Affordable Care Act did. And, and what I'll highlight is um, the Affordable Care Act limited health insurers' ability to um, to impose lifetime or annual caps on the amount of um, coverage, uh, the amount of bills that the health insurer will pay for, for a given patient. So uh, historically, uh, a health insurer might say, we're going to cap what we'll cover for you at a million dollars or $2 million or something like that. And that would um, uh, do two things. One, if you're a patient, that would uh, potentially be very threatening if you wound up having those very high bills. But for the insurer, what it meant is that they're less on the hook for the most expensive patients. And economically speaking, if the insurer has less responsibility for the most expensive patients, then it's got less reason to try to avoid those patients in order to maintain its um, its ability to kind of stay afloat in order to ensure that it collects enough in premiums to, to pay for what it has to pay out in coverage. And so it had somewhat less reason to do what we call lemon dropping, which is to try to avoid the sickest patients or engage in what we call cherry picking, which is to try to encourage enrollment by the healthiest patients. And uh, when the Affordable Care Act came in and limits uh, lifetime caps and annual uh, caps, it um, gives insurers even more reason to try to, um, to try to find ways to make health insurance um, plans that are less attractive for sick people. Uh, And and that's connected to an economic concept called adverse selection, which is that a a health insurance, which is just very generally in the lay terms, adverse selection is the fact that um, features that are attractive to somebody who who has a materialized risk uh, will will attract people with that risk, uh, which means in a health insurance plan, features of a health insurance plan that are attractive to somebody who is sick will attract sicker people. And if you are a health insurer, you would like to attract healthy people because they are much cheaper to insure. They pay the same premiums, assuming there's no premium rating, they pay the same premiums, but they cost a lot less because they incur much fewer claims. So, you know, an example I would give to try to crystallize adverse selection is imagine if, let's say, Aetna or just pick an insurer decided they're going to be the ones who make medical billing painless and simple. And they put up a billboard that said, patient-friendly cost-sharing and medical billing at Aetna, right? And you're driving by that billboard. Now, many of us might see that billboard and think, oh, I would like patient-friendly medical billing. But that billboard is going to be the most attractive to somebody who has a chronic illness or ex- otherwise expects to incur claims and to get a lot of medical bills, right? And if you talk to some people who have chronic illnesses, they've got boxes of claims forms and bills, and they're constantly having to keep track of this. Patient-friendly billing would be a huge deal for them. But somebody who's relatively healthy does not expect to incur any bills next year. Well, patient-friendly billing uh, might not be um, might not be such a big deal to them. And so, uh, and you might have to redirect uh, your question to get me, um, make sure I answer it. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, back to the ACA. Sorry about that. So, um, uh, uh, as it stands, health insurers have this kind of reason to avoid um, 
patient-friendly plans. This is one of the economic problems that contributes to the social consequences problem. And uh, what the ACA did is it took away one of the ways that insurers had to um, kind of price out or limit their exposure to sicker individuals, and thereby gives them more of an economic incentive to devise plans that subtly or in ways we can't quite pick up on um, avoid sick individuals or discourage enrollment by sick individuals. Uh, and so that's just one example. Uh, and uh, I go into further detail into the paper about how um, uh, the Affordable Care Act might kind of exacerbate the social consequences problem, even as it does something that I think you know, many people would say is very laudable, and I'm not saying it doesn't. It's not worthwhile on net. I'm just trying to highlight uh, one of the trade-offs um, um, when you impose kind of a, a, a flat cap or, or ad hoc limit on the design of insurance plans, uh, like the ACA did, without trying to change insurers' underlying incentives. And and that's probably a good segue, if you don't mind teasing up my own question. I think obviously. Um, the drafters of the ACA recognized that health insurers have problematic incentives at bottom that encourage um, basically discrimination against sick people and in favor of health people in the design of their plans because the law includes what's called a risk adjustment program whereby uh, insurers that enroll the sickest individuals wind up um, um, getting a, a, a payment and insurers that enroll the healthiest individuals wind up having to pay a fee with the goal that this will mitigate insurers' incentive that they otherwise have to try to uh, you know, cherry-pick the healthy individuals and lemon drop the sick individuals. So the ACA uh, kind of shows an effort to use algorithmic tools to change the underlying problematic incentives in a way that I think is important. Uh, and I don't mean to suggest it only had these kind of ad hoc um, uh, mandates that, that can be problematic. And that's actually one of the points of inspiration for one of the proposals in my paper, which is that we should explore using similar algorithmic tools to compare insurers based on how much financial distress their insureds suffer, looking at credit scores or at bad debt, uh, and then potentially even design a system of payments and credits along the lines of risk adjustment um, in order to uh, uh, basically fix insurers' incentives so that they have more reason to adopt patient-friendly billing practices uh, to the extent that they are worthwhile. So... Let's expand a little bit on these potential solutions, uh, algorithmic solutions, ad hoc solutions, and competition-based solutions on the uh, social consequences problem. Sure, I would love to. And, and I will return to my caveat from before that uh, you know, my core goal is to identify really a theoretical problem and call for regulators, one, to... Um, and researchers want to explore that problem. And I have some suggestions in the paper for where to look to see more evidence of this problem. Um, and uh, second, to call for regulators to experiment with um, systemic reforms. And I suggest some pathways to do that. So so I'll, I'll mention those reforms. But again, um, um, in a way, my paper is, is an effort to identify trade-offs to kind of to say that these outrageous billing papers, sorry, these outrageous billing situations we see, um, 
we shouldn't necessarily think, well, if we just ban that particular situation, the problem's gone and we can move on. Rather, try to say, well, these, these situations are actually the tip of the iceberg and we should really try to understand the whole iceberg and, and the way to really break it up. Um, and, and indeed, there's a risk that if we just try to ban the parts we can see, then the thing just keeps floating on and, and we never fix the rest of it. And, and if, if, if listeners follow that metaphor, then, then kudos to them and they should certainly read the paper because they, 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 they can understand me at my most confusing. Um, so, so two of the, uh, what I call systemic solutions uh, that I would uh, advance are first something I just hinted at, which is that uh, regulators should collect information from insurers about the um, credit scores and particularly the adverse um, uh, adverse credit reports related to medical debt, which is something like 50% or more of adverse credit reports. Uh, collect that information from insurers in order to compare whether the trend for patients enrolled in particular insurers is better or worse among different insurers. So, you know, we often hear about health insurers, just just word of mouth kind of thing, that, oh, well, that insurer is much worse when it comes to billing and claims than this insurer. Um, but it's hard to get good information on that. So, so what I would suggest is that we actually look at the credit scores or other information of patients enrolled in particular insurers and just compare for, you know, for patients who had a credit score of 700 when they enrolled and incurred $7,000 in debt, uh, what was the impact on their credit score in one insurer versus another insurer? And if we look at that data, um, um, which regulators can get access to under uh, some laws I identify in the paper, it, we may well see pronounced trends, differences among insurers. And, and regardless whether we do or not, we may see that it's that we're able to process it in a way that we might actually design a system of credits and transfers between insurers or a, a payment system that would essentially give insurers skin in the game of their own beneficiaries um, uh, medical distress and so give insurers a reason to um, uh, one take away insurers problematic incentive not to minimize social consequences and two give insurers a reason to try to innovate around patient-friendly practices. And I think that kind of a systemic approach is called for as compared to simply ad hoc approaches uh, for three reasons. First, again, as I mentioned with my iceberg metaphor, it might be that just banning the most problematic practices doesn't go far enough. So for example, if we think an $8,000 bill is a real problem when someone gets it while they're on vacation um, and they go to an out-of-network provider, uh, and we take that away. Well, okay, is it is it that much less of a problem if someone gets an $8,000 bill simply because they got sick at home and, and their cost-sharing amounted to $8,000? Uh, that is to say, what is, what is the problem that uh, uh, makes regulatory intervention necessary when it comes to an out-of-network surprise bill, but, but isn't present when someone just has a lot of cost-sharing for whatever other reason. Uh, and, and again, as I've been discussing, I think there is a larger underlying problem with the way trade-offs are made, um, and, and both might be problematic. Uh, second, I think a systemic approach that changes insurers' incentives is useful because uh, uh, if, if, if we simply prohibit particular practices, we push the insurers to uh, uh, 
have an economic reason to simply uh, adopt different practices that might be equally, if not more problematic. Um, and uh, I talk more in the paper about examples of that. But basically, we wind up playing regulatory whack-a-mole where we prevent one practice that uh, might be being used to cherry pick or lemon drop and just push insurers into another. Uh, and this is something Tom Baker has written about um, what he calls uh, risk classification by design. Um, and uh, Tom McGuire, an economist at Harvard, calls it service level selection. But basically, the concern is that we drive the discrimination against sick patients out of the terms of the insurance plan and into the practice and management of the insurance plan, where we might, we being regulators and scholars, might simply not be able to see it. And then third, and I think it's important to note, is is that if we change insurance incentives, we might actually not just get rid of really problematic practices, but spur innovation. So uh, if currently there's a problem that's leading insurers to leave their beneficiaries vulnerable to outrageous bills, and we get rid of that, then we're kind of just with the status quo for whatever that's worth. But if we actually tweak insurers' incentives, the economic incentives we're putting on insurers, the regulatory system is putting on insurers, if we tweak those incentives to um, to, to give the insurers skin, a game, skin in the game of their own patients' financial distress, then they might not simply start insulating patients against the most uh, you know, outrageous situations, but also coming up with their own innovative kind of patient-friendly cost-sharing designs and options, uh, you know, um, financing for medical bills or, you know, better, more useful, predictive apps that tell you when you're going to get a medical bill or just make the whole situation easier for the patient. So uh, in a way, it's, it's, the suggestion is designed to kind of unleash some of those benefits. Um, so that's what I have in mind with these kind of systemic incentive-based proposals. And, uh, you know, sorry to do kind of another awkward caveat, but, but I, I do want to note there, um, it, none of what I'm saying should be taken as kind of trying to cast judgment or anything like that on insurers uh, when they fail to protect insureds against um, financial distress or on doctors or on anyone else in the system. I kind of, as a, as a legal academic, my view tends to be, you know, we have a, a legal structure in place that creates incentives for various actors. In healthcare, that means we rely on health insurers to design plans. We rely on consumers to choose plans. And that it's really unfair if we then turn around and criticize uh, an entity for responding to the incentives that our, that our laws put on the entity. Uh, uh, if, if anyone's to blame, it's, it's, it's the lawmakers and it's, uh, uh, it's all of us for failing to, to get the laws changed. Uh, that's, that's me just soapboxing and kind of uh, caveating for a moment. So that's a systemic solution. You also asked about, um, or that's kind of an algorithmic uh, competition-based solution. You also asked about a more systemic solution. And here I just, uh, I have the idea that I think we, we should experiment with mandating that insurers cover all medical bills and then any cost-sharing liability run between the insurer and the patient rather than between the physician and the patient. Again, our current system is the insurer just refuses to cover 20% or whatever it might be under the cost-sharing agreement. And then the doctor is responsible for billing the patient. And what I'm suggesting is instead the, do- the, pay- the insurer simply pay the doctor and then the insurer collect from the patient the remaining 20%. I talk in the paper, there's a number of advantages of that approach. There's also a number of disadvantages. I ultimately think the advantages make it worth experimenting with. But really, a key benefit is that this would take doctors 
out of the role of bill collectors. Our current situation puts your doctor in the position of having to bill you after the fact. The physician-patient relationship is supposed to be built around trust, and this is bringing in financial considerations. Also, if you, in today's kind of very complicated healthcare space, if you get sick, odds are you're not just seeing one doctor, but five or six or seven. And that means you're getting five or six or seven entities responsible for billing you, little slices of your care. And we would consolidate all of that with your insurer with whom you have an ongoing financial relationship. So I think it would make things a lot simpler for the patient. It would also make things a lot simpler structurally. Now, it would take away this externality that currently gets put on doctors of uh, patient bad debt. So I think you have to work through the right way to take away that externality. Um, uh, but ultimately, I think that uh, kind of across-the-board situation would really change the way medical billing operates for people with health insurance, uh, it, potentially in a very positive way, and is worth considering um, You know, as we also think about more limited ad hoc prohibitions of particular practices. So as a final question, what should doctors and insurers and policymakers take away from your paper? Sure. Um, what I would, you know, doctors, insurers, and policymakers, I think, um, I think doctors and insurers themselves, um, are naturally going to be focused on, uh, their own businesses, which provide very valuable services. And, um, and that can lead them by design not to see larger structural, um, you know, issues or, or uh, uh, reforms that are left on the table. So uh, for, for doctors and insurers, I would actually just hope that they take away again that, that I don't, as a legal scholar, I don't see it even as my, at least the way I try to approach my scholarship, because uh, to each their own, but at least the way I try to approach it, I don't cast aspersions or blame on any entity in the system uh, for kind of responding to the incentives the, the system puts on them. Um, that said, I think uh, either doctors or insurers that feel they're being unfairly blamed or anything uh, should hopefully maybe uh, you know lift up my paper to policymakers and say, no, look, it is the system and it's the structures uh, you've put in place. For policymakers, I think it's um, it's it's really the the key takeaway is that while outrageous billing scenarios are um, kind of in the news and certainly worthy of attention. The problem with medical billing is deeper and warrants uh, both more research and investigation uh, and potentially more widespread kind of systematic uh, uh, reforms than merely dealing with the particular headline grabbing abuses. And that would be, I would hope, the um, kind of overarching takeaway policymakers might have. All right. Well, thank you, Professor Lawrence, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I found this to be kind of a thrilling experience, and, and I will listen with great trepidation to the, the things I actually said and, and, again, refer listeners to the paper itself for, for uh, my best attempt at a last word. Drugs are like that too 
you pick it up, it's hard to drop, and drugs are like that too. A baby going through a phase, a player playing in a daze. You break a rule and you have to pay, will it hurt? Well, who's to say? Singing, drugs are like that, drugs are like that. Drugs are like that too. Singing, drugs are like that. Drugs are like that. Drugs are like that.